Breaking the stigma of addiction. This is Zach's life, a story of love, addiction, loss, grief, and recovery. Reflecting on Zachary Horton and others in our community, both, both inside and outside of their addiction. addiction. Hosted by Jim Horton of the Zachary Horton Foundation. Hello, everyone, and thank you for uh, joining us uh, today for our next episode. Uh, I want to say hi to Tyler tonight. Tyler is uh, joining us. Tyler, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well tonight. Just came back from a wedding. All right, you, you got married. I did. I was get... <laughs> I wasn't invited. <laughs> not yet. Not me. Uh, I get to see all my friends that got sober slowly get married, have kids. It's a it's a warm feeling you get when you're present and get to be a part of it. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, Tyler, I know that. Um, Actually, I think it was probably about two or three weeks ago. You and I had a chance to uh, speak with uh, to about sixty uh, high schoolers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was a great time. That was the first time that I, you know, ever really got to, uh, you know, kind of hear your story. And you know, I, I I know that you you work in recovery, and and uh, I know that you did some work with Zach. And but this is the first time that I ever got to see you interact with people. And and uh, uh, I can tell you're doing you're doing some good work. And but it's got to be challenging too, because you work, you know, an eight to ten hour a day job, and then, then you still go out and and do these other things as well. Because let's see, that was about six or seven o'clock. Self care is crucial, the, the most importance when you're working in the field of recovery. And on top of it, you got your own, and then, you know, uh, it's a lot, yeah. But it's also the most rewarding thing. I've got to be a part of. So, so, so t- tell us, define self-care just for those of us that don't know. Um, what does that, what does that mean? Learning to be alone, be comfortable being alone. Cause you know, uh, my own recovery and working in recovery and being a part of everybody else's is, it's very stimulating. You know, your mind is overstimulated all day long and, on top of that, you got, you know, in the position I'm in, you're pouring into people all day long and it just drains you. Like sometimes I always joke, I'd rather dig a hole for eight hours and be physically exhausted than constantly pour in and pour in and pour into others because I got to, who's pouring into me? Yeah. I, you know, what exactly do you do? Tell, tell us about, I don't even know exactly what yeah. your job is. <laughs> I got a really cool opportunity uh, where I work, but um, my title is a client advocate. You know, I feel like they just made it up for me, which is great. But (laughs) I kind of work right under the operations and the clinical director, and I get to interact with all the clients on a day to day basis. uh, Granted, if time allows it, but I my main duties are to oversee all our sober livings so we have uh seven different sober livings five male two female currently and i'm pretty sure they'll keep growing and then i'm kind of like the middleman for the clinical team with the clients so like the clients go to group counselors tell them what to do and they might forget they might not want to do it they might rebel they might make it hard like not harder but think overthink it too much and then i'm i'm the guy to interpret as like a normal human being you know because they're very uh 
professional and then I get to be myself and be like, yo, I'm, I'm sober too. I kind of know what they're saying and I kind of know what they're saying. And so I, I'm kind of like, I mesh it all together. Okay. All right. Well, so to, to do what you're doing, I mean, uh, did you, uh, go to school and get a four year degree and, and that, or (laughs) that's the best part. Uh, you know, I used to regret, you know, getting sober so late, uh, at the age of 28, but, uh, it's it's like cliche almost right but uh the school hard knocks you know i started using drugs and alcohol at age 15 i sobered up at 28 uh so so you're on a 13 year educational track is what i hear you say yes so i i am a doctorate at uh (laughs) at uh recovering alcoholic addicts all right all right well uh, I, I know that uh, I know that Zach sure thought the world uh, of you, and so the the work that you're, you know, that you're doing there, I know is is just benefiting and 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 having that experience. So tell us for for those of us in in the audience that that don't know your story, let's break that down for you know ten minutes or so, and just tell us a, a little bit about how you got to where you're okay. at today, because you, you just look like a like a normal guy that has everything going on right now. I kind of do, but <laughs> it took a lot of work to get here, yeah. man. Uh, so good high school, uh, honor roll, played sports, soccer in particular. And, um, you know, sophomore year, switched schools, wanted to fit in, started dabbling in drugs and alcohol. Uh, no real bad consequences. Honestly, those are the best years when you're doing it because there's no negative side effects. You just have fun. You got the structure of school and you get all the, the feel good feelings out of it without any of the negatives. And and, uh, and, and where'd you go to high school? I went to Clovis West. So you went to Clovis West. So your 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 use beginning happened in in Clovis schools, which were Zach went to Clovis North. Yeah, and. And, and and a lot of people say, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, how, how did, you know, how did that happen? It was, is in, is in Clovis. It's like, you know, not, not on the West side. They're well, it was Clovis ones. West. They're the worst <laughs> ones. <laughs> you know, the better the school, the more accessible things are going to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would also say when you mentioned that the consequences were almost non-existent, it's that that's the way it is. Cause as, as a parent, I can tell you that, that, when we did, when we did, you know, uh, find that Zach, you know, had a problem, we were immediate to, you know, to, to set some kind of a, you know, there was a consequence. He was grounded for whatever, right. you know, whatever. But, but we also wanted just to see the very best in Zach, and so we didn't want to see how deep the problem was. We didn't, we didn't want to go there. And because we made it, you know, hey, he had a job that he worked, you know, and he had, you know, he had friends were places that he could go that he that he wouldn't be seen and we always just wanted to see the best and so he didn't necessarily have to fail at 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 a young age and i think that allowed his problem to exacerbate so going through high school dabbling with drugs uh i was a part of the oxycontin epidemic right um it's no joke but uh 
started dabbling with that. I was very unaware of addiction and side effects and withdrawal. And so I caught myself one day going into an opiate withdrawal and I just felt sick as a dog. And someone said, Hey, like you want to do a pill? And I was like, no way. Like I feel awful. Like I'm sick. I'm throwing up. I'm shitting my pants. Like I'm not doing a pill today. And they're like, you're withdrawing. And I was like, what's that? Like it's the, what happens when you do too much pills. Now you got to do one just to feel better. I was like, that makes no sense. If I feel like shit, I'm going to stop. And they're, using, they're like, I bet you. Get a pill, do it with me, you'll feel better. And I was like, all right, I got nothing better to do. This is stupid. It's one of those stupid things you do with your friends that you'll re- regret it even more later. And so we split the pill, I sniff it, and within minutes, I feel completely normal. And I was just like, oh my God, what did I get started with? And, um, so at at that point, so at that point you were like a light bulb went on. You said there's an issue. Yeah. Yep. But you felt better. So the issue was, I feel better. I I kind of, whether I knew it or not, I was subconsciously accepting like I'm addicted. And, you know, once you're addicted and you have, and you know, you start getting to that addict mindset, I would convince myself well, I can't afford this forever, you know? It's like $40 a day, and if you're doing more than one, you're like it's almost $100 a day just hanging out with friends. And so I would try and convince myself, I'm not going to do as much, or I'm going to slow down, or try and control it and do a half of a quarter of a pill and make this pill last. And no matter how I broke it down or made it make sense in my head, it just slowly got worse. And, um, I just finally, uh, accepted it and then tried to roll with it by when I say roll with it, like I need to figure out how to make this more accessible, cheaper and keep money coming in so I can keep buying. And, um, you know, then with all the rap music out and like the egos that we have in these Clovis schools with good grades and good families, you know, I was going to be a drug dealer. <laughs> like that was that was my undercover hidden alias thing I did is I got good grades. I played on the sports teams, but on my free time, I'd sell some weed. I'd sell at the time they were selling cough pills. Uh, I had a few different connections for different pills and I'd sell them for more. And um I guess I did all right for a Clovis kid selling drugs. I always had a few couple hundred bucks on me and, a, you know, a couple half ounces of weed. But uh, the opiate pill thing, like, always trumped everything else. And at some point, I started getting fronted pills because I was so good at selling them. But then I'm not just buying them. Now I have to get them fronted, get the money, and give the money back. And I'd, like, get to keep a pill or two. And then eventually I just got fronted and I started keeping everything and never coming back. And then I run out of uh, resources and then uh, I screw it up with the whole pill game. And now I need something even cheaper. And then that's where heroin comes into place. Um, dabble with that. It's always safe to smoke it. But then you're smoking a bunch of heroin every day. Your lungs hurt. You're smoking weed or smoking cigarettes. And it's like, just beating me up 
And then, uh, so I, I, you know, had a peer that I looked up to and thought, you know, he was the man, cool guy, uh, introduced me to intravenous, you know, using a needle. And I was like, I was still in the mindset I was going to try everything once or even for a period of time, but this isn't going to become like a lifestyle. And, um, yeah, I, I, I tried it and nothing's ever compared since. And so that became second nature on how you do drugs. You don't smoke them. You don't sniff them. You don't whatever else. Like it, if you're going to use drugs, you stick it in a needle and stick it in your arm. And then you start to experiment. Now you can, I didn't know you you could shoot other things. I thought I was just heroin. No, you can mix meth. You can mix cocaine. You can even mix alcohol. If you want to get all scientific with it, you know, and play um, Bill Nye the Science Guy, you can break down benzos. You can break down pills that shouldn't be broken down. Like, you'd be surprised what you can turn into a liquid form to get it in your body. And it didn't take long for uh, me to go homeless. I was homeless quick. Um, by the time I was like 19, my parents saw the addiction, tried to give me help. Um, the only thing I didn't do was steal from them, which they still you know, commend me on today. But th- I refused the help that they were offering. I thought I had it all together. Cause I so had- so e- even as you saw... And, and now you knew that you needed to have this, right, to not be sick. This was... Right. That's that's an addict's biggest fear. And and, and so you know you, you need to have this. And even though they're offering you help, you would... It, was, was it that you saw... Was that you saw your life of addiction as... Did, were you lying to yourself that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kick this and get out of it? Or was it just that, hey, this feels so good, I don't want to do anything else? Or... Did you feel like, dude, I'm already too lost? I mean, and again, you were not, you were 19. Yeah. So tell me about how does a 19 year old mind think about that? Well, too? by 19 too, I was a couple of years into it. You know, I got connections, I got places to go, people to see. You know, like I felt like I was the man. Oh, so so you're saying you're homeless, but in the beginning you're couch surfing or you're hanging out with your buddies. You're not for like a not even a year. I, I burn them out pretty quick, but it's like uh, as long as you keep the drugs in your body, like the confidence that it deceives you with. Like you know, I got I'm smart. I had good grades. I was an athlete, so I'm I got fairly good health. And now you mix substances into it. That's gonna like emphasize this ego and intelligence and the overall well-being and confidence of like i got life figured out you know and i'm sure a lot of teenagers if i recall like even without the drugs you still get those senses of like i don't need to listen to what you guys i I got this figured out but you throw drugs into the mix it's like i'm gonna go be an architect and a lawyer by myself without anybody's help (laughs) well there's a process you gotta go through buddy and, like, I didn't care. I was going to figure it all out. And so, yeah, man, like, uh, I just went homeless really fast. I was sleeping downtown. I, I started this, uh, a cycle, I call it, and it was just jail. I'd get out of jail, and they'd put me in a rehab program, and I'd never stay. I'd stay sometimes for a few days, sometimes for a few weeks, but I never stayed or completed. And then I would just go straight back to sleeping outside downtown Fresno. 
And each time the psych, and then eventually I'd get in trouble or get caught being homeless, and then I go back to jail. And each time the circle went around, they got longer. Jail time got longer. Actually, rehab got shorter, and then homeless went longer. And then after doing this cycle enough times, I was like, you know what? I just need to stop getting in trouble when I'm homeless, and I can stay homeless and get high. I just got to figure out something else. And so that's when I stopped all the stealing and boosting and committing crime and screwing people over because that shit always came back and bit me in the ass, and I always ended up in jail and then back in a rehab program and disappointing my family because it affects everyone. And so finally, I was like, I need to be like like homeless like a bum. Like I need to panhandle and just not bother anybody. I know where to get the drugs, and I know how to survive outside without money. So I just need to quit crime and lay low. And then I finally came up with panhandling and cleaning windshields. And to this day, I still have family friends that were like, dude, we used to see you out there. It's like, I know, like, did I clean your windshield? <laughs> you know, because like uh, I took pride in that and it felt good just to be able to do something for the money. But it kept my habits strong. I had a girlfriend, a dog, making $100 a day just cleaning windshields at Arco gas stations. Only Arco's. Anywhere else, I always had trouble. And so that was like my superstition, Arco. And uh, so when you get gas today, do you seek out Arcos? Yeah. Uh, from time to time, I, I actually try to avoid them because <laughs> uh, every once in a while, there's a few of them actually that I've walked into and people kind of just look at me and be like, do I know you? And I'll be like, I don't know. I might have cleaned your windows. And they're looking at me thinking I'm being like a smart ass. And I was like, no, you don't know. I probably cleaned your windows. But um, that worked for a really long time. And uh, it, it works so well. All the other homeless people, I remember at one point, I was cleaning windows, and I'd be like the only homeless kid walking around counting all these ones. And then I'd go to jail, and I'd get out and just go back to doing the hustle again. And there'd be like three or four homeless people all at the same gas station with squeegees, but they were just like holding a squeegee in the air like, hey, can I get some change? You know what I mean, me, I had newspapers and uh terry cloths in my belt loops i had a long squeegee in my backpack a short a short squeegee in my hand some windex hanging off a belt loop like i looked the part and like i was because i was i was about it hit the front the back the sides if you got time and i didn't care what you had you want to give me a cigarette you want to give me some food you want to give me some it didn't matter like i need all of it and so I felt like I was living pretty lavishly for being homeless. And um, I don't want to go too into this whole. Uh, well, that's, I, I think we had talked about this a little bit earlier, Tyler. So I think that a lot of people, when they see someone struggling with addiction, uh, they, see, they see, you know, the person living under the bridge living on the side of the freeway, you know, in the, in the, in the tents, yeah. cleaning somebody's window, they are sure that that person fell into that life of addiction, uh, that either one, they want to be there, it's their choice, or there's mental illness involved, but it's those people over there. And, and what was amazing about your story is that, no, you were a honor student at Clovis West. Yeah. You lived, uh, 
quote unquote on the on the good side of town, right? Uh, and and still you you found yourself there, and it, but it wasn't something that happened overnight. That and it was and it was just a process, and so I think that's that's the point that I'm that that I'm getting from this is that it, it truly is something that can happen to to anybody, you know. And, and part of what we do with the foundation in, in breaking the stigma of addiction is trying to get people to see that that it, it can happen to my family, and I mean I know it can happen to my family, and you know that it happened in your family, mm-hmm. you know. But it's but also I think you know, most of the Clovis schools that we would go into where if, if I wanted to get into and talk to a room full of parents, their first thought would be that would never happen to my son. Right. Right. I, that's what I would have said. This would never happen to my son. Yeah. You know, he gets straight A's. He works, you know, he works every weekend. He doesn't have time to party, you know, or like you, he's in, you know, he's in sports. He's an athletic standout, you know, you know, it just kind of came to me when you're talking right now is it's almost, I don't know, ironic to me at least is that uh, addicts and alcoholics are probably some of the smartest, most intelligent people in the world and pre-substance abuse, it's the pride and ego that get involved. So like, you know what I'm saying? Like if... Before the substances, it's pride and ego. But once you throw in the addiction, it's almost impossible to try and intellectually convince them they're making a bad decision or this is going to hurt you or even kill you because pride and ego plays such a big part. And so I uh, it's always hard to make sense of it. I think I did a little too much back then. But like I'm thinking if I had children, right, it's not even making a... Uh, sharing awareness and breaking the stigma is important, but teaching humility and, you know, how to like help the next man, you know, is I think really, really important because I was smart. I figured it out homeless. I figured it out, uh, growing up. I had really good parents that taught me good morals and values, but at some point I think all the attention and, uh, admiration of good grades and being an athlete kind of got me all like look at me like I'm somebody I'm going somewhere with my life and then I did drugs I was like it's drugs like drugs aren't the problem you know I'll put them down whenever I want and then once I was addicted and knew I needed to get sober I still had this pride and ego that was in the way for so long and even when I went homeless like I must have had a really big ego to have to stay out there for as long as I did before I finally was just like, okay, God, I've had enough. Like, you know, cause I was even convinced like I was okay living like that the rest of my life. But so how did it, so, so take us through now. So, so now you're coming up on, on, you said you've been clean since 28. So, but, so what was your process then now of getting, of getting sober? What was it that turned it for you? All right. Um, well, I was on methadone. I couldn't really feel the heroin anymore because I was on such a high dose of that. And so I started using more meth and I started to lose my sanity. And not just the sanity, like the way I think. My thinking was becoming different. Things that were not okay 
in my head growing up with the morals and values were just like, what's the big deal? See a woman getting beaten or robbed or maybe even raped. I was just like, uh, you know, like not my business. Now today, if like I see that, like I was raised, you go help that woman, you know, right, right, right. all these things. So that's just a, an, a, an easy example to give, but there's many other things that I'd come across where you're just like, whatever, you know, even my, my self care for myself, uh, like from what I was wearing for clothes or how many days I'd go without a shower. Like my thinking was slowly changing and it was slowly becoming more and more, uh, not okay with me. And so that mixed with, you know, some low grade psychosis that meth was having on me. I was like, I got to do something about this before this gets any worse. Cause I could get, I'm, very likely to be homeless the rest of my life, but to be homeless in this state of like my mind digressing and the voices that were going on, I was like, I'm not okay with this. Like put me in a long-term program or lock me up in jail. Like I'm going to kill myself. Wow. So, so, so you had, you had a moment of clarity or awareness that it was an aha moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Ironically, I was, I've been a big crybaby my whole life. And I remember walking down, I think it was Tulare Street, just bawling my eyes out. Uh, probably coming down from a high, but just bawling my eyes out, crying, screaming at the sky. Like, I hate my life. Why do I hate this? Like, why do you do this to me, God? Blaming God for it all. And then I just stopped crying. Like, out of nowhere, just completely stopped crying opened my eyes and I was like, I got to go get sober right now. If I don't go get sober right now, I'm screwed. And so I like started walking and thinking and for like the next few days, all I could think about was my plan of how I'm going to finally get sober for good. And in my best thinking, uh, I said, I got to go to jail. Jail's rough. It's not pretty, but at least I can maintain sobriety. You know, there's going to be a bunch of crazy rules and shitty food and, you know, some mean guards, but I can stay sober in jail at least. And that's what I need right now. Who cares about the food? Who cares about the politics? Like I can maintain sobriety in there because I've done it before. Not to mention, I mean, there's drugs from time to time, but it's really hard to find drugs in there and you got to have money. I'm already homeless. If I'm in jail, I can't, <laughs> you know, so that's that's just I'm I'm just blown away that that, that again the, in 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 your mind that's what, but but again that's that's a rational thought. Right. It was the best idea I could come up with because I mean, I didn't have insurance at the time, and there's tons of treatment centers that are county funded, but I've been to all of them already like three four times, and I'm like, right. uh, there's no such thing as like an actual blacklist, uh, if I recall. But I was kind of like blacklisted at all these programs because I was either uh, bringing drugs in or using drugs in them with other people or AMAing. Like I was always getting in right, trouble. And they're right. like, well, we don't want this problem child in our 70, 80, 90 bed facility right. potentially taking other people out. And so, you know, my, my best bet was go to jail. And then now I'm thinking, like I just got off probation. I've been homeless for a good two years straight. 
Like I was comfortable. The cops were off my back because I've been on probation since I was like 17 and I got off at the age of 27. And now I'm finally like been a free man. And I'm like, fuck, man, I got to go put myself back on probation because I need to go to jail. And uh, a crime too small, they'll kick you out, especially in today. Like you could do some damage and uh, you're not even going to go to jail. And or you do something really bad and you're going to go to prison. I'm like, I don't want to do either of those. Like, I just want to go do a couple months. And, you know, God had my back, man, because my bright idea was to shatter out windows at the downtown buildings. And uh, I shattered a few out uh, once a day. I'd shatter something big out, knock it out, sit down and wait for someone to come arrest me. No one came and arrested me. (laughs) And uh, so I finally just had enough of this and I went straight to the the lion's mouth and went to the police headquarters downtown and I shattered out their entrance glass doors, uh, right there on the Fulton mall. And, uh, I got arrested in like 30 seconds. Success. Yes, it worked. <laughs> and, uh, if I could sum it up, the craziest thing is I've been to jail like 30 times. Every time I go to jail, I end up going upstairs, which means they dress you out in the jumpsuit and you do whatever weeks, months. This is the one and only time I commit probably a fairly serious crime with the actual police themselves. And I got released in like 10 hours. And I was like, what the, like how, like the, the one and only time I don't want to get out, they let me go. And so I was really defeated, but, uh, I walked back to the side of town start hustling again. And within like 12 hours, cops find me and they flashlight me cause it was night and they asked me, are you Tyler Hamilton? And I was like, I didn't know. I didn't have to say anything. I knew my rights. You know, I, I don't want to talk to cops. And uh, they knew it was me, and they arrested me. So they rebooked me. Like, they refiled, refiled the charges, like, immediately after releasing me. And uh, this time I went back. I got to sit, sit in front of a judge. They wanted to release me in, like, three weeks and uh, do some probation. And I was like, no. I was like, keep me here as long as you can. And uh, they were able to give me eight months, and eight months in county is only four. So I had 120 days to pretty much dry up and get some act right. And it was just enough time. By the time I got out, I had a clear head, had some weight on me, uh, checked in with probation. They didn't want to help me, probation, surprisingly. And so I checked in for five days straight, stayed in from the time they opened at 8 a.m. till they closed at 5 or 4.30 every day. And I just sat there in their lobby and I said, I need a treatment program. And they wouldn't help me. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to lose my mind again and be homeless. I would rather sit in jail for years than go live on the street. And so I left that Friday because they were going to be closed for the weekend. And I went and used all weekend long. Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, and I showed up Monday morning for probation, like expecting, arrest me, take me back to jail. At least I was safe and I was sober. And uh, I checked back in. My probation officer is just like, oh, my God, what happened to you? And I was like, are you joking me? Like, I told you, I'm a a homeless dolphin. Like, I need help. And uh, he got me into a program like three hours later. I did a 90-day inpatient. Did another 90 days in sober living uh, with an outpatient while I was in sober living. And I, I got a job like my first two weeks in sober living. Uh, 
And uh, so then once I got the job, I got to go to night classes, you know, kind of the same structure that my program does today. If you got a job and you can get your life rolling again, we'll adjust your outpatient schedule to, you know, your work. And it just, it kept getting better from there, man. You know, jumped into some 12-step programs, made some friends that were sober, you know, had a girlfriend or two girls are looking at me again and I'm like you know because I'm all insecure and defeated inside with no self-esteem and now I'm making friends talking to girls got me a bike because I didn't have I didn't have a license since I was like 20 and uh rode my bike took the bus for a year and it's just man you just got to put in the effort and God will do the rest and that, and now you're uh, uh, years on the other side of that and it's got to look so so when you think back on that Tyler does it is it like a, is it like another life or is it still clear enough where you think it's just around the corner if given the right circumstances or oh like uh, a relapse or whatever well, it's uh I, I don't even know if I would say that but but I mean I, I know like when I think back about my about my college time. It was like another life. It's not even like it was, you know, it, it, it was me. Uh, but so I know, but now it's been several, it's been several years for you. So yeah, and maybe, maybe thinking of it in terms of relapse. I mean, does, does that still seem possible? Does that seem? It's always possible. And that's what needs to be the reality. But there's a lot of milestones and accomplishments that come with, maintaining long-term sobriety and you need to because other people recognize them you know mom dad friends are like holy shit you got a year oh my god you got two like these are important things you want to remember and everyone else around you remembers them especially if they've seen you in your addiction but like now sitting here talking looking at you and having this conversation like i've worked way too hard to just like leave here after this uh, recording and be like, you know what? I think I want to go get some heroin for a Friday night. Like there's no way there's yeah. no way. Like you've worked way too hard and too long to, cause I've already know what it brings me through many trial and error and repeating that cycle. I know exactly where it's going to take me. And for the first time, uh, I've been able to maintain this abstinence of all substances and I accomplished more in that first year sober than I did in 10, you know, and I'm coming up on my fourth year in January and like, you know, if get to know me and they're like, yeah. what, <laughs> you know, people trust you, you know, keys to the building, you know, manage other people, give young kids, teens and, you know, young adults advice on life. Like it's, uh. It's pretty cool, man. You know, getting to sit here and just reflect on it. It's, uh, and I get to remember all of it. You know, I've probably had some of the best times in my life. I don't remember any of them. Yeah. And now yeah. I, I remember all of it. Well, dude, I gotta say it's, it's, it's great. It's great to hear your story of, 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 of where you were and, and those years of tragedy and, and, and how they've turned out now. It's, it's just, uh, it's wonderful. You know, and, and I think uh, you and I were talking about Zach a little earlier tonight. And, and uh, w one of the things that I miss the most, I think I've probably said this before on this show, is that I, uh, 
you know, when, when he was in his real active addiction, the last nine months, uh, uh, my interaction with him was, was really poor. But since his passing, I've heard a lot of people talk about, you know, the last few months of, of, of Zach's life, just about, you know, how much fun he was and what a great kid he was and, and how thoughtful he was and, and all these things that, you know, I remember from his youth, you know, that I didn't get to see. And after hearing your story, I know that, you know, had, had the, the tragedy of his overdose not happened, there, there is uh, absolutely uh, a, a real strong possibility that, you know, he wouldn't have been long until he would have been on the path that you're on now. So when I can see you and the life you're living now, I can take some some joy in that and seeing seeing some of Zach in you. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Huh. Well, and, and I, I I think again in in light of uh, the the mission statement of our foundation about about breaking the stigma of addiction and just having the conversation going about about what substance use disorder looks like and how it can touch many lives of people that may be living next door to us or living in our homes or people that we see in our church on Sunday or that we run into the bank uh, you know during the week uh, in in hearing your story of 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 where you came from and knowing Zach's story about, about where he came from, you know, the more that we can talk about it, the more that we can, the more that we can see that this isn't something that always happens to other people. It needs to be talked about. It needs to be talked about. And then we can, and then, then we can get the help. And one of the things maybe that happened for you, Tyler, is because of, of all the programs that you were able to go into when you, when you got ready that you said, I need help, you knew how to find it, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think what would be great is if it didn't take nine years of living on the streets to find that. But, you know, if if we made this kind of help as readily available as help with any other kind of a disease that we have, and we talked about it where it wasn't stigmatized and, and it wasn't negative, uh, it's not that every person who's suffering with this is going to go out and, and, and get help immediately. Right, right. right? But, but let's make it the most available that we can and have people ready to reach out. And, and again, people like you, because the, the deal that we did the other night with all the high school kids, that was at 7 or 8 o'clock at night, long after you had already put in a full day yeah. of work, long after you had uh, you know, already took care of your self-care, right? And then you hung out there for another three hours. You it's, know? A, it's a responsibility of mine, you know, uh, having the relationship that I I've, I have with God today, like that's just what you got to do, man. Like I've been given a, a second chance and a new life and it's an amazing life. And part of my due diligence is to make sure that I, I share it with everyone else, you know? Well, brother, I certainly thank you for, thank you for the work that you do. And, and, uh, uh you're certainly forever part of our family. And, uh, and, uh, when I, when I get to see you and I get to tell you I love you, I mean it. Thank you. Everyone, you guys have a great uh, have a great night. We're going to sign off for now. This is uh, Zach's dad, uh, 
be sure and find someone that you know and tell them you love them. Hey, Zach's dad. I love you too, man. (laughs) This has been an episode of Zach's Life. Thank you so much for listening. For more info on our foundation and for addiction resources, visit ZacharyHortonFoundation.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a story to tell and want to be a guest on our podcast, email me directly at jim at ZacharyHortonFoundation.org.